Are you going to be do incorporating a loving kindness into the meditation or is it going to be mostly silent? Are you? I not? will be at least, you know, I want to give some instructions and I'll probably come in a few times. Yeah. And I do have um, just a couple announcements. So yeah, go ahead. Well, first off, I know a lot of you um, know Terry Howland. Um, she's actually in the hospital right now. She's at St. Mary's. Um, I, we don't know yet. She hasn't been di- diagnosed, but she's pretty uncomfortable. She's not really taking phone calls or anything, but up, up on the website on the homepage is her room number. So if you want to send her cards or flowers, uh, you're invited to do so, but we're not really in communication with her and I'll keep updating whatever information we have about her. So that's up on the website and I'll keep updating that so you can keep on track with, with her. Um, also Anna's continuing a summer of goodwill and she has a class this Sunday and then the following Sunday is going to be a kind of a day of practice of beginning again. Um, so that's up on the website also. And then the a summer of goodwill will begin again after that for the next three weeks. So take a look at the website if you're interested in, in looking for something on Sundays. And um, just to remind people about offering Donna to Tina, you can do that through the IMT website. Also, if you go to the page under Tina, Donna for Tina, it will also give you um, the the link that will take you to her site. And I think she posted that in the chat as well. So you have different ways to offering these precious teachings. And yes, people keep arriving. So great. <laughs> Good, and welcome, everyone. I just have, uh, let's see, well, the main announcement is uh, that my New Zealand retreat is open. So if anybody's been wanting to go to New Zealand, uh, there's I'll be offering a two-week retreat there in um, February, which is the end of their summer. Nice time to be uh, uh, somewhere else if it's if the weather is more conducive there. Um, and my retreats for next year, if, if anyone's interested, my retreats have been selling out really quickly. So a good way to know when they open, which they're going to be on lottery going forward at Cloud Mountain is to join the email list at Cloud Mountain. They send out a, a kind of a warning so that people know when they would need to go in and get on the, um, the lottery drawing list. And I do have four retreats scheduled there for next year. Uh, so I think that's about it for announcements. And if you want to be on my newsletter list, I do that about six times a year. There are um, talks, free talks that come out and other kinds of announcements that might be of interest. So uh, tonight is the beginning of, of a series on the um, on the Brown Viharas. And I know that you've, you've heard those probably most of you have heard of the Brown Viharas, practice them, or in particular, the meta practice is pretty widely taught and, um, and practiced within Theravada Buddhism. But, uh, my take on them might be a little bit different than some of what you've heard. So I'll be starting tonight with the meta practice. So we will, uh, 
start with actually doing the metta practice. We'll sit for about 30 minutes and um, I'll give some instructions as we're as we're going through this at the beginning. And I might come in a few times during the meditation with reminders. So go ahead and find a comfortable posture. Chair or bench or cushion, all of those are fine. The main thing is to have a posture that helps you to feel supported and upright, but also relaxed. And in this practice, oftentimes people think the phrases are the object, but every meditation has an object. And in this practice, the object is actually the person's goodness. So we'll be doing uh, metta for ourselves. We normally start with ourselves in this practice. And the Brahviharas are a little bit like, like onions in that they have, they have kind of layers. So the first object then is our own goodness. And what we could think of this as our inherent, our innate goodness of our Buddha nature, which all beings have. Or it could be specific things that point you to that for yourself. When we're in touch with someone's goodness, there generally rises a a sense of well-wishing for the person. If we see someone at a store, you know, somebody we know, but even with strangers, if we're in touch with someone's goodness, we, we wish them well. It's like, I hope they have a good day. So that's the spirit of it. It doesn't have to be at the level of unconditional love, but just a well-wishing. So that's kind of the next layer, is feeling our own goodness and a simple well-wishing for ourselves. sense of, yeah, I have goodness. I may not be perfect, but I'm a good person. And I I wish well for myself. And in that well-wishing, using phrases with specific kinds of well-wishing can be supportive. Oftentimes with the Brahmaviharas, the phrases end up becoming the object and it can become quite dry, like a mantra. And that's their supports, just like the counting is a support in the Samatha and noting is a support in Vipassana. The phrases are a support that help us be in touch with well-wishing. Well, there are traditional phrases. I'll just say my own. You may have your own phrases. You're welcome to use those. Well, wishing could be, may I be safe? 
may I be healthy. May I be happy. May I live with ease. May I be liberated. And we can go slowly with these. Really the intention is most important. And they can even go down to one word if we become familiar with them. We're not trying to make these things happen. It's more of the spirit of wishing well for, in this case, ourselves. One word phrases would then be safe, healthy, happy, at ease, liberated. Remembering that our own goodness is the actual object. And just having the phrases be a way of connecting to the well-wishing we have for ourselves. The loving kindness, sense of caring for ourselves. And as we sit in this way, going through being in touch with our own goodness, innate goodness, feeling the sense of well-wishing through the support of the phrases, then there's the possibility at some point that we might actually feel a sense of, of metta, of loving kindness, caring towards ourselves in the heart area usually doesn't have to happen. We're not trying to generate metta. When the heart is unhindered, that is the natural response of the unhindered heart to somebody's goodness. The way if we saw an infant, we would feel caring towards that infant. You can feel yourself as you're sitting here. You could picture yourself as you're sitting here or picture yourself out in front of you. Or if it's hard to do metta for oneself, we can also picture ourselves as an infant or a child. It can help people feel that sense of innocence and goodness in a way that can be supported.
So I'll be silent now as we sit with this sense of loving kindness for ourselves as a practice to really hold our own goodness as real and to foster that sense of caring and well-wishing love, loving kindness for ourselves. Okay, we'll take a five to seven minute bio break and then start the Dharma talk. I can't tell if other people are back, but I invite you all to turn your um, cameras on. It's not required, but it does help with a sense of community if people can see see each other. So, um so going on then to talking about the Brahma Viharas in general, and then I'll talk about the metta practice in particular. And um, the Brahma Viharas are, the word Brahma Vihara means either divine abodes of the heart or sublime abidings. And they're, they're really places for the heart to rest. So the Samatha practice is the purification of mind, of the mind stream. The Vipassana practice is the purification of view, of our view of ourselves, our interior and the world. And the Brahma Viharas are purification of the heart of our relationship to ourselves and others in a more of a, an interpersonal or intrapersonal way within ourselves. So uh, they're ancient practices and they have been, you know, a core part of uh, both Theravadan and Tibetan Buddhism for a long time. And one of the things about um, the Brahma Viharas is, is there's a way that I think they've gotten a little bit marginalized sometimes in, in the modern teachings and that they're sort of seen as like a side practice. You know, you you sort of do this a little bit, but it's not really the real practice. It's kind of a, an add on or something you do when you've got all the other all the other bases covered. And uh, or. Metta is often taught by itself, which is fine. It is um, taught by itself traditionally in Buddhism as one of the, what's known as the protective meditations. But sometimes the other Brahma Viharas really aren't very emphasized. And um, they're really, they work together more with more strength as a whole, as a whole set of practices. So, you know, there's different, I think, distortions that have happened to these practices over time that um, that are a little bit unfortunate because it kind of loses the actual power of them as a purification of our our ability to be in the present moment because we don't have to turn away from difficult um, heart situations either difficult things within ourselves where 
uh, you know, maybe there's self-judgment or unworthiness or, you know, loneliness, all kinds of ways that we can be hard um, on our own heart or in difficult situations with others that are just too hard to be with. And so we can't be in the present moment. So often I'll see people who may have a lot of Dharma capacities, but when it comes to interpersonal things, they just can't, you know, they, they get overwhelmed easily and they shut down and they can't be with those things. So at some point, everybody really needs to work with the Brahviharas. They have a substantial practice in their own that's equally as relevant and valid and robust as the other categories of practice. And, and just to go through those, we know in the neuroscience, but this was already in Buddhism long before we had EEG machines and such. Um, the heart practices, which I'm talking about, the focused attention practices of concentration, of which Samatha is the main one in Buddhism, uh, the open monitoring practices where we're really allowing the contents of our awareness without leaving anything out, and Vipassana is that. And then in uh, in Theravada Buddhism, we have the self-transcending practice of Chitanupasana, or we can look at Tibetan Buddhism at Dzogchen as the fourth category. So, um, so the practice has been kind of superficialized, not by everybody, of course. There are a lot of teachers teaching this practice in a substantial way, but sometimes you'll hear it taught as um, something we just do for others. Like if somebody's having a hard time, it's fine to send them metta, but there's kind of an implication in that that this is sort of a thing we're doing to like fix the other person, you know, and, and so I'm going to do metta. And if, and then if they don't get better, maybe I didn't do the meta right. You know, so there's kind of a way, it's not that it's, there's anything wrong with sending somebody meta and feeling that we want to support them in their hardship. So there, that's a beautiful aspiration. But then it's kind of like, well, is this like some kind of magic where now I'm doing this and it's going to actually make them get better? These are practices that's Tonglen. So there is a Tibetan practice where we're actually doing that, but these practices are really designed to purify our own heart. So that if somebody is having a hard time, if we have a loved one who's having a hard time, our heart is pure so that we can actually be with them in their circumstances. You know, so this is really what the practice is. I'm, I'm now talking from a technical standpoint. They're really designed to purify our own heart so that we can be present to everyone in every circumstance without having our heart need to shut down because it's too hard to be with. So, um, so the four Brahmaviharas are uh, metta, so the, the, I'm giving the Pali word metta, which means loving kindness. Karuna, which means compassion. Mudita, which means empathetic joy. And upeka, which means equanimity. And then there are two kind of supplemental practices of gratitude and forgiveness. 
So uh, the loving, loving kindness is really done. That's kind of the baseline practice that when things are fairly neutral and life is just going along normally without anything really too extraordinary happening, that's our baseline that we see other people's goodness and for our own. And from that, we wish them well. Like, you know, where I live, I have a mail carrier and I have spoken to him a few times and I see him driving around the complex with his headphones on and sometimes he's on the phone and, you know, I don't know him well. I'm never going to know him well. But when I see him, I I think, oh, gosh, I hope he's having a good day. You know, I, I hope his day is going smoothly. And, you know, there's just a spirit of well wishing for the person. So that's really what loving kindness is. And we can be sort of in contact with that a lot of the time if, if the heart is unhindered. So these are things that arise when our heart isn't hindered. And this is a practice. So we shouldn't be like expecting that we're feeling this all the time immediately. It's a practice because what we also do when we do the practice is we find what's in the way of that. So like, Meta, well, I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Um, and then there's Karuna, which is compassion. So the object, all of these have an object. So I'm getting technical now in Buddhism. When we're doing meditations, we have an object. For Meta, it is the person's goodness. For um, Karuna, it is the person's suffering. So we, this practice would arise naturally from an unhindered heart when we encounter someone who is suffering either ourselves or someone else. That compassion, we wish for their suffering to end. We hope that they can bear their suffering, that it's not overwhelming, that they can somehow work with it or we can work with it. It's a natural wish for the person to get through it and, and be okay. Mudita is empathetic joy. So the object in this practice is someone else's good fortune. So in this, when someone else is having good fortune, we're happy for them instead of being envious or thinking, well, they don't deserve it. You know, I did that last year and my boss didn't, you know, give me an award for that, you know, or whatever. There's a lot of ways that this this practice sounds easy, but when we start getting into the different categories of beings, it can get harder. Like imagine your least favorite politician being very wealthy, for example. We might think, well, how did that happen? They don't, you know, they don't deserve that. They're evil. So, you know, this is when Mudita gets hard, especially when there's some, we feel someone doesn't deserve it or there's some sense of, you know, competition. We don't do this practice for ourselves. What we would do for ourselves if we're having good fortune would be the gratitude practice. So that's where when the way that we direct basically a version of this practice for ourselves is, uh, you know, when things are going well for us, like, wow, I'm, I have a sense of real gratitude, not, not like to anyone where we can have it to the, you know, deeper nature of reality. Um, but that is what arises 
when we are having good fortune and the heart is unhindered, a sense of gratitude naturally arises. And then lastly, upaka is equanimity. And normally this is the last practice taught because it's, well, it can be thought to be the hardest. It's the most complicated and it's easier to do when we've had some experience with the other three. Um, equanimity, the object is, um, when we're, things in the world are happening that we just can't reconcile, like, you know, millions of people dying from a pandemic or climate change or um, bad things happening to, to children or, you know, um, there's a lot going on in the world these days that it's really hard to have a sense of peace about. And this practice helps us to work with that. And the idea is that if we are going to need everything in the world to be perfect before we can have equanimity, we will never have equanimity. This really is pointing directly at the first noble truth that that unsatisfactoriness is inherent in the human condition. That we have bodies with nerve endings that that hurt. They're going to die sometime. We're going to have loved ones who die or who have bad things happen. We'll have losses. This is inherent in the human experience. And even the Buddha didn't escape this. I mean, his cousin tried to kill him. How many of us have had our cousin try to kill us? You know, not probably none of us have had that. So even the Buddha didn't escape from, you know, some fairly significant unsatisfactoriness. So the idea that somehow we're going to get out of that is really not realistic. And, um, but if we're waiting for everything to be perfect to have equanimity, we will never have equanimity. So what do we do about that? How do we, um, learn that we can't know why everything is happening? And can we find a way to have equanimity even in the face of not knowing why? And that's what this practice helps us cultivate. So um, these four, they really, um, oh, Michael, did you have a question? I'm sorry, I just missed, um, what was the object of equanimity? In equanimity, the, the object can be, uh, it could be something with a person. So like, for example, a lot of times parents will have a really hard time if their children are suffering or, you know, for all of us, if loved ones, but it's really hard for parents, especially because there's such a sense of responsibility, even with adult children, you know, so it could be personal to someone we know that we care about that's having a hard time with things, or maybe they just have a life circumstance that isn't that easy to make better. Um, or it could be something more general in the world that is happening that we don't, that we don't understand and we just can't like wrap our arms around, uh, like something like a pandemic. Like why is this happening? Or maybe we ourselves have a health issue. I remember that it's been about 10 years ago now. I was 100% disabled. And if I, I could have spent a lot of time going, why me? Why is this happening? Of course, I believe 
that karma is at play. So there's a way that I can accept that this is, I'm just burning off karma, you know, but not everybody feels that way about it. So equanimity, it's, it's really like, how can I be at peace with this difficult thing that's happening to me, to someone I care about or in the world? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, you use the word acceptance and that's what came to mind. It's a quality of acceptance with maybe an overlying sense of trust, maybe karmically or. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, acceptance is one part of it. I, you know, I don't want to say that we don't ever do anything to make things better. So like for take something like, um, you know, a lot of social justice issues. We may know why those are happening, so that might not be a good example. But like with climate change or with the pandemic, it doesn't mean we don't, we just go, well, millions of people are going to die, so I just don't do anything. You know, we still want to take action. So the acceptance is more internal. We may still take action to improve things in the world. Um, but there's, it's equanimity is really like, can I be at peace with what's happening, even if I can't change it? Like, you know, a, if someone finds out that they're, they, they're dying, they have a, a health issue that's going to lead to their own death. Can there be a sense of equanimity without knowing why this is happening? Or, um, does that clarify? Yeah. I love the word equanimity because there's a way where it's uh it's like, can I be at peace with this even without knowing why it's happening? Why does it have to be like this? You know, why why do children die of violence? You know, I we're never gonna have really a good answer to things, a lot of things in life. But if we're waiting until those all get corrected to have equanimity, well, it, it eliminates the possibility of ever having equanimity. So, um, so the, the Brahmi Haras are really describing the direct experience of the heart qualities of our deeper nature when the heart is unobscured, when it's unhindered. And they are part, technically within Buddhism, they are a concentration practice. They're part of the Samatha portion of the path. So they can lead to deep concentration states if we practice them intensively. You know, there's the potential for that. A lot of people don't even know that this is has the potential to lead to um, meditative absorptions and other deep states of concentration. That would be, you know, not in daily practice, but um, but they are also taught that way. So um, so I talked some about the reasons why would someone do the Brahma Viharas? Well to to soften our own interior and um, to be able to really settle into the heart in a way. A lot of a lot of times it's hard to be with our heart when things are difficult. So there's, in a lot of ways, this is a really courageous, these are courageous practices because we're going into some tender, you know, wounded places. We all have heart wounds 
Every human has those. And they can also improve relationships as part of this softening of our interior. They purify the heart. I've talked about that, um, helping us work through the patterns of um, resistance to certain kinds of experience or resistance to be in contact with certain emotions that might feel like they're too much or they're, we're going to be too vulnerable if we really feel them. All of this is keeping us out of the present moment. We can't be with what's arising. They um, help us cultivate a wise orientation to really any situation that arises. And this is one of the things I like about really taking them as a set, because if you look at them, uh, they really give us a way of an aspiration for how we can respond to just about any human situation. I mean, they cover a lot of ground. So if we're wanting support from Buddhism on, on how do I engage with the world wisely, this is, you know, a pointer for how we engage at a heart level with the world and, and learn to be present. I mean, sometimes it's hard to be present with what's going on in the world. And it's a way if we can feel compassion in the face of things that we can be present with a lot, a lot of different difficult circumstances. And then lastly, um, it, these practices do help us develop concentration. So there's a practical um, way of building that that can be used with other practices. So then um, looking at metta in particular, the loving kindness practice. And again, the um, object is the person's goodness. So um that can either be a generic, like our Buddha nature. So one of the things I really love about Buddhism is that, uh, and this isn't in Theravadan Buddhism so much, but it is in the Mahayana and the Vajrayana Tibetan Buddhism. So in Zen and in Tibetan Buddhism, that this is really a part of it, is, is the idea that we have inherent Buddha nature. So it's kind of the opposite of original sin. You know, instead of us all being born flawed in some way, the idea, and this is a really fundamental belief in these lineages, is that we are born as Buddhas that are covered over with the conditioning of the defilements and hindrances of the personality patterning. So that there's, that goodness is there. We don't have to do anything to get it. It is already in every human. And, you know, if you doubt that it's in you or someone that you know, I'll just remind you of the story of the Buddha and Angulimala. So this was somebody the Buddha encountered. Now, the word Angulimala, it means thumb necklace. This guy was wearing a necklace of the thumbs of all the people he'd murdered. He wore this as jewelry. Mass murderer. He was a sociopath. And the Buddha encountered him, and he became an arhant over time. So whatever anyone of us has done, it's not as bad as Angulimala. So, you know, we all have Buddha nature, and it's potential for, for all of us to, um, you know, to wake up. So the inherent goodness, we can either see it that way as something inherent in all beings, and we can also 
Uh, you know, I sometimes when I'm, I, I work a lot one-on-one with people and will encourage people to actually find some specific things for, in themselves or in the person that they're doing the meta, um, who is the object, the person who they're working with as the, um, there's a sequence of beings that we go through when we're really doing the practice deeply. And we go from, e- we always go from easiest to hardest when we're doing Brahma Vihara. So we start, we start with ourselves. That's not always very easy for a lot of people. A lot of times there's a lot that can come up. And, and I've had, when I taught a month long retreat a few years ago, there were several people doing metta for themselves for the entire month. So, and I've done it for, for weeks at a time, just for myself or for one particular person. Like I've done it for two weeks for each parent individually. Um, so, um, it can be hard to do it for ourselves, but we start with ourselves because we really can't fully be in touch with loving kindness for others until we have it for ourselves. That's why we do ourselves first. There can be a lot that can come up. You know, I'm not worthy. I should be doing this for other people before myself. I don't deserve it as much as others. I'm flawed, so I don't deserve it. Um, there can be a sense of unworthiness. There's a whole lot that gets worked when we're doing it for ourselves. So, um, this is part of why the instruction of picturing ourself as a child or even an infant, it's the rare person who can't feel themselves or see themselves as an infant and not see their own goodness. So it's perfectly fine to work with that for oneself. Um, ideally, we would feel ourselves sitting there in the present moment, and and then we're bringing it into present time, but a person can work up to that. If it's almost impossible to do it for oneself, then we start with the benefactor. So benefactor is um, is a person, an uncomplicated relationship, somebody who's just supported us, where it isn't not a parent. Maybe a spiritual teacher could be the Dalai Lama, even, you know, you don't have to know the person, Um, but somebody where you just feel their support of you and it's uncomplicated. And then the other categories, friend, new friend, sometimes family can be in there, but really saving family relationships for later is after you're a little more experienced at it is better because they're complicated. You know, there's love there, but it can, it can be complicated. Then neutral person like the, the mail carrier, the checkout person at the store. Then we go to the difficult person. This used to be called the hated person. So just to give you a sense of, you know, could be your least favorite politician or somebody you're having a conflict with in life. Somebody who just bugs you could be a family member, somebody you're strange from. And then the last category is all beings. So, and we don't do all beings right away because it's great to do all beings, but it can become very, um, uh, not very deep where we're not working the actual issues. You know, when we're picking a specific person, then we actually get to work what's there. And we only really know that if we've worked with a person for a while. 
So um, that can be really helpful to do the practice in a way like, you know, I, there's all kinds of ways to do it, to do one category a week or pick one person in each category per week and do, you know, the whole thing or, you know, there's a lot of ways people can go deep with any of the Brahma Viharas by splitting up the categories um, over a period of time. Um, I'm going to go on to, to talking about how, you know, there's a lot, there's out in the pop, popular culture and even within Buddhism, there's a, there's often a sense of, um, doing it when we're doing it for others that we're actually like trying to transmit vibes to them and change that person or make their bad situation, you know, their difficulty go away. And that could happen. I mean, there is, there have been studies on, on remote prayer that actually sometimes these things do actually change what's going on with someone, but that isn't the purpose of the practice. So just to be clear, when we're doing this for someone else, it's to purify our own heart. That is, as a practice, that is what it's for. Because it's very easy to get so focused on the other person that we're not actually purifying the heart. We're trying to make their situation better instead of going, okay, what can, what's going on for me in relation to this person? And feeling our own either freedom or obscurations to um, that. And we're also not trying to make the feeling happen. So sometimes I'll hear that people have been told to generate metta. So this is the practice. You sit down and you generate metta. Well, based on what? You know, I mean, these are responses of the heart to a certain human condition. So first of all, there's a person and it's their goodness. If we're in touch with their goodness, we don't need to like try to squeeze something out, you know, that's can barely get out. We will, it, it's a natural response of the heart. If you see children, really young children, they're just, well, whatever they're feeling comes out. They're not always happy, but you know, you can see like the spirit of this with two little kids who are just discovering each other. And, you know, one offers the other the second half of their cookie or something. And, um, you know, there can be a real, it's, it's a natural thing that arises. So we're not trying to make it arise. It's a byproduct of, uh, our well wishing. It's a byproduct of really being in touch with someone else's or our own goodness. So we're not trying to fabricate it or, or, um, anything like that. Um, I went through a lot of this in the, in the guided meditation, but, um, we're, we, it's like an onion. So we start with the person and their goodness, whether that's us or someone else. We can be in touch with specific things. Like sometimes I'll work with people and they'll say, it's really hard for me to do metta for myself. And I'll say, okay, let's, do you see anything legitimately good about yourself? I mean, we're not making this up. We're not glossing over your imperfections. But what do you feel is really legitimately good about you? And I've never found anyone who couldn't come up with several things that, like, they could say, yes, this is 
this is legitimate. I can really feel that this is something about me that is a representation of my goodness. So that makes it a lot more real where it's not just euphemisms and platitudes. It's really, it's got some substance to it. Or same thing if you're doing a difficult person, um, you know, that can be hard or a neutral person. Like you can make up something generic about them, but it's better if you can find something real, like even your least favorite politician, maybe they're very determined or they have a lot of, um, they're articulate in some way. So, you know, there's something that you can see that you actually feel is real, that we're not just spewing platitudes about things because then the practice, no wonder it gets dry if you don't feel there's something really of substance there. So, um, so that's the first layer of the onion. The next layer is then our well wishes for them. And this is where the phrases come in. And often this practice can be turned into a mantra where people think the phrases are the object. Phrases aren't going to generate a feeling of metta in the heart. The person's goodness is a natural response. So the phrases are really just like counting is with samatha, with the, the breath as the object. We might use counting to help us stay with the breath. Well, the phrases are helping us stay with the, the person's goodness and our relationship to their goodness that we wish for them to be, you know, um, my phrase is safe and healthy. They, they may not have good health, but we still wish for that. That's our wish. We're not saying these things are going to happen. We're saying that we're wishing that for this person. So it's really more about our wishes and um, the fact that we want them to have a good life. So that's really what the phrases are for. And the phrases can even be dropped uh, if they become clunky, which if we're, one is doing this like on retreat, at some point we don't need to have that conceptualization and they could be dropped even. So if they're the object, how is it possible they could be dropped? They're not the object. They're support for us being in touch with the person's goodness and our wishes for the person. Um, and then the next layer out is the actual feeling of metta. So it's like in the Samatha practice, um, there's what's called the, the jhana factors, but there's things that can arise in the practice as a byproduct of concentration. And the metta is a byproduct of our being in touch with the person's goodness. So it can arise for, and it would arise from the heart. And it's an actual feeling. Um, have people felt the sense of metta? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's something that is palpable. And it feels good to feel it, even if it's not for ourselves, you know. So this is really what can happen in response to our contact with our object of meditation, in this case, someone's goodness. So um, what else do I want to say? When doing metta for ourselves, you know, we could spend really our whole Dharma life doing metta just for ourselves, and it would I don't know that we'd ever get 100% there, maybe a fully enlightened person. 
but a lot of people feel they don't deserve it or they should go on quickly to others. And the Buddha, I love this quote that he said, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are. And you will not find that person anywhere that you deserve your own loving kindness as much as anyone in the universe. So I love that because it's telling us that it's okay to feel this way about ourselves, to care about ourselves, to wish for our own well-being and happiness. It's not selfish. It's, it's essential. And the phrases, I gave you my phrases, the traditional ones are, may I be free from danger, may I be free from mental pain, may I be free from physical pain, may I be well and happy. Those are the traditional ones. One of the things I really like about all, about all the Brahm Viharas is that we can customize the phrases. So you've seen what I've done with the phrases for myself. I've been using those for decades. A lot of my students use my phrases because they like them, but you, you can use them, make them your own, make ones that are meaningful for you that carry the spirit of what this um, is pointing to. And also it's fine to go down to the one word. So I found that really to be helpful because it's just start getting more settled. That's a lot of verbalization. So even just feeling the sense of wishing that sometimes what I'll do if especially if I know somebody I might even picture them in these situations where they're safe where they're healthy where they're happy where they're at ease where they're maybe meditating liberated so that can be another way to have contact. It can get really busy, so that would be more if you're going to really take this on as a practice. And people also will do, say your main practice is Samatha or Vipassana, people will do sometimes five minutes at the beginning of Metta for themselves or if they want to do it for a specific person. Uh, and that's fine. It is, Metta in particular is used as an antidote in Buddhism. So so there are times we do the practice like as a purification of heart and there are other times we might do it as an antidote like if we're feeling maybe kind of hostile towards somebody or like we have to have a conversation with somebody and we can tell we're just like not in the right place to really have that conversation we might want to do five minutes of metta for them again this isn't for them it's for us so that we can go into contact with that person with an open heart, with a heart that isn't, you know, defended or walled up against them, or at least, you know, trying to bring a softness there. If we find that we're judging ourselves really harshly, if we, maybe we've done something unskillful, these are all possible times to use metta as an antidote right in the moment, not even in meditation. You know, you might find that you're getting really triggered by someone or something, and that could be a time to do metta for yourself or for, for the other person. And uh, that's a totally valid part of Buddhism, that it's often used as an antidote. So the, um, and I'll just 
finally go over the, they, in the Bravihars, there's what's called the near enemy and the far enemy. So near enemy is something that kind of looks like it, but isn't it. The near enemy for metta is attachment. So, you know, we get attached to someone. We, we love them so much that now we're attached or we're possessive. Uh, and then the far enemy, which is kind of the opposite of whatever it is, is is hatred, anger, aversion, self-hatred, guilt. So that is, those are things that this can be uh, an antidote for as well. So any questions or comments about the Brahma Viharas overall or the Metta practice in particular? John. Tina, thank you. Um, what I started pondering this evening is how is this different than I was raised a praying Catholic? Um, mm-hmm. so, um, how, you know, the, the one thing I could discern the difference between them is perhaps I'm praying to God to do that mm-hmm. rather than more direct connection. Um, uh-huh. wondering if there's, uh, experience you have that you could share with us. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're doing the Brahmaviharas and the phrases, we're not trying to make those things happen. So we're not, when we say, may I be safe or may you be safe, we're not saying, please make them safe. What we're doing is feeling the blocks in our own hearts to actually the well-wishing. So, you know, I don't know if I, you know, when people say praying, there's a lot of different versions of what praying means, too. So I don't know. How does that compare to when you say praying, what you, the different versions of what praying is? Yeah, I didn't make a good Catholic, so. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But I knew that I was supposed to do it, and I was supposed to look like I was doing it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I understand that there's not a uniform definition of prayer. And, um, yeah, I was just sorting it. Yeah, through. yeah, a lot of times, I mean, it's, there's a lot of different versions of praying, and um, there's even the modern ones, Thomas Keating and others who have done, you know, more contemplative kinds of prayer. But a lot of people, when they say praying, it it's kind of refers to, I'm going to make this like way oversimplified, asking God to do something for them. And in a, in, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the more gross version of that. God is a vending machine. You're putting something in and you're trying to get something to come out. So that's not what this is in any way. We're doing this to purify our own heart. So we're not doing, we're not going and and say making a request of the Buddha that that person over there be safe, healthy, happy, at ease and liberated. That's not really what is happening. We're, we're doing this to purify our own heart from being obscured to wishing the person well or to feeling a sense, a spirit of love and kindness for them. Thanks. That, that second part really helped. Okay. 
Yeah, and this is one of the places where it's really gotten confused. The Tonglen practice in in, in Tibetan Buddhism, where and I will say that I've, I've seen a lot of different versions of Tonglen. My Tibetan teacher said somebody wants in Tonglen we're actually taking in other suffering into ourselves. We're taking, trying to take it from them and bring it into ourselves and purify it through our own heart. And if someone's doing that, they better be in a non-dual state because if they're not, it can get, it can, you're taking it in if you're really doing it. I, I was at a retreat once and someone asked my Tibetan teacher, well, what if somebody has cancer and I'm doing tongue for them trying to take it and I get cancer? And the teacher, I don't totally agree with this answer, but he said, then you're doing it right. <laughs> so Tonglen is a practice you want to study up on before you start trying to do it. You know, if somebody's doing it in a non-dual state, which is really, it's an advanced practice for people who are past the first stage of awakening. And, and, then it can actually purify because it's coming into somebody who doesn't have ego identifications that are active at the moment and it can actually purify, you know, so that's, that is more, but then we're not asking God to do it. We're doing it. We're taking on, you know, it's really an an enactment of the Bodhisattva vow in a way to, to take that on. But that's a very different practice. And sometimes I hear people talking about Tonglen and Metta as the same thing. And really, again, technically they're, they're really quite different. If we were though to go to say Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion and, and pray to Kuan Yin to take away someone's suffering, that would be a lot more like how I understand, I mean, I was raised a Christian, all Christian, you know, that would be more to me an equivalent within Buddhism to what is done in Christianity and other traditions that have, you know, more Western kinds of prayer in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Other questions or comments about any of this? Um, I, I have a question if sure, Michael. no yeah. one else does. I, I was, since no one else is uh, chiming in. Yeah, I was, absolutely. I was just curious at the very beginning, you talked about um, forgiveness and gratitude as supplementary um, uh, practices of the, of the Brahma Viharas. For me, in my own uh, practice of hard practices. I I would think that forgiveness is like before any of these because if I'm if my heart can't forgive, how can I offer love and kindness, uh, or how can I purify my my own heart if I can't forgive first? So it's uh-huh. interesting that you called it supplementary, whereas for me I think it's fundamental. Uh-huh. Um, how do you understand it or Buddhism talk about it? Yeah, yeah. Well, metta is considered the, the, the most, the, it's what we do when things are fairly neutral. When there isn't anything really 
difficult or dramatic happening. So that's why metta is usually taught as the main heart practice. If you, you know, it's, sometimes it's pulled out and just taught by itself. And it is one of what's called the protective meditations where it's taught by itself. Um, forgiveness is like, if you look at the degree of difficulty, just wishing someone well when there isn't a lot of baggage going on is easier than actually forgiving someone that's harmed us. So in that way, it's a harder, it can be harder or forgiving ourselves. Maybe we've done something really unskillful and it's, we're just beating ourselves up about it. That's harder than just wishing ourselves well when the day is going fairly neutrally. So in that way, that's part of why metta is taught first. Um, the forgiveness prayer, but I, I hear what you're saying, and there's a really valid point, I think, in there that if we, if, if we're holding, um, a lack of forgiveness or grudge or, you know, hanging on to things, how is the heart ever going to be unhindered? So that's a really, really excellent point. And, and I have a, I teach at the end of my retreats, even when I haven't taught the Brahma Viharas at all, most of the retreats, I actually do the forgiveness practice because a lot comes up for people on, especially on long retreats, you know, things we've done, things others have done, things we're holding on to. So, and I just had somebody today who was saying, how would you suggest doing the forgiveness practice? And, and, um, and she's going to do it for a while daily at the end of her practice for forgiving herself for things that, you know, just beating herself up for just, you know, minor things she's done during the day that is, you know, it's, we're, we're hard on ourselves. We can be really hard on ourselves. So there are a lot of, um, I think the forgiveness practice, it could be brought up as, as a fifth Brahma Bihar, but in Buddhism, we've got these four, um, you know, in some ways you could say the forgiveness practice could be an adjunct almost to any of the others, any of the other four. So, um, you know, I'd invite you to, if it's something that draws you, you can do that at any time. It's, it's something I think we circle back to because in the forgiveness practice, there's three things we can forgive. We can forgive um, when we've harmed others, we can forgive when we've harmed ourselves, and we can forgive when others have harmed us. Mm-hmm. And usually the last one's the hardest. And especially, you know, people with intergenerational trauma and things. I mean, there's some really horrific stuff that happens. And it's hard it's there's a lot there so um i think it it can be taken as a practice unto itself for sure i think uh yeah thank you for that explanation yeah because uh i was thinking of that you it was just peripheral but you're emphasizing that it's actually um more uh, you know it's more advanced in some ways it is yeah i mean equanimity is pretty advanced too but forgiveness yeah it's it's hard the bar can be quite high especially if someone else has harmed us 
you know, there, there can be a sense of like, if I forgive, then somehow I'm making it okay. But really the forgive, it's about the forgiveness. It's kind of like anger in this way, but it's like drinking poison and think it's going to hurt the other person. You know, so we're, we're forgiving not because we're letting someone off the hook. We're forgiving because it's harming us to hold this kind of, you know, stuff inside. It's a, it's a gift that we're giving ourselves in a way to be able to put this thing down when, when we're ready though. We can't, it's not something that can be forced. So it is, it's complicated, especially if someone uh, someone has harmed us in a, in a way that really is deep and um, life changing, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so over the next several months, I I'm going to be gone next month, and there's a few other times um, over the next few months that I'm I'm kind of in and out, but I will be going through all of these, and I may do a fifth month where I go through um, non-duality and love, which isn't talked about in Buddhism much, but it is in other traditions, and the forgiveness practice. So uh, I may add a fifth month where I, where I round it out with those. So lovely to be with you all, and may your heart be ever more free to feel its deeper nature. Thank you, Tina. Yeah, you're welcome. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.